Hello everyone, I am cold case investigator and true crime novelist Michael C. Bouchard, coming to you from the Housatonic River Valley in Derby, Connecticut. The Night Stalker podcast will be brought to you in a series of 18 different episodes examining unsolved disappearances, homicides, and other strange events throughout New England and other parts of the United States over the past few decades. What makes a person kill? Even more, what turns a person into a serial killer? What makes a person lurk in the darkness, waiting for his next victim? Is it the thrill of the chase? The thrill of killing another human being? Or the thrill of never being caught? We may never know the answer to any of these questions, but I can assure you, as you sit here tonight listening to the podcast, Somewhere a monster is lurking in the darkness waiting to kill their next victim. For whatever reason, we all walk on the dimly lit path of life on this planet, telling ourselves it will never happen to me, it will never happen in this town. But do we really know that? I hope you enjoy each of the episodes and feel free to email me with any questions or comments at the link at the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's Mike Bouchard here again, hosting the Night Stalker podcast, episode two, The Disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin. The disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin on June 14th, 1969, led to one of the largest search and rescue attempts by the National Park Service in its history. Unfortunately, throughout the search and rescue attempt, there had been a lot of um, conspiracy theories developed even later in time. um, These conspiracy theories uh, continued to grow, uh, mostly to boost book sales and uh, fill up lecture halls. The unfortunate thing, a lot of these things weren't true. Uh, Some of these included uh, a fictitious creature called the Wild Man. And of course, we always have the uh, abduction by Bigfoot. Uh, So the case itself was placated by a lot of uh, conspiracy theories that weren't true. Uh, the death of a, uh, actually the suicide of one of the lead investigators uh, was also um, brought up to be some type of a suspicious um, occurrence, which it wasn't. Uh, We'll get into that a little farther uh, down the line. Dennis Lloyd Martin was to spend his uh, Father's Day weekend in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park with his father, his grandfather, and his brother. Now, this had been a tradition for the uh, Martin family for for years. You know, uh, similar to a lot of us who have our family type traditions that we d- do. 
Dennis, um, at the time, was uh, seven. He was he was a small kid. He was about four feet high, just under a hundred pounds. He attended Macaulay Elementary School in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, as fate would have it, and I'm not going to get into too much of it. Um, I have a book out. It's called The Disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin. You can find it on um, Amazon. I'm not sure what exactly the price is for it, but um, it's not an expensive book. But up until today's date, it is the most detailed book concerning uh, Dennis's disappearance. It was the first, in the book was the first time that the National Park Service actually um, released um, information to me at a FOIA request. Although I have to say um, the original report held by the FBI, which is 147 pages, uh, for the last 10 years I've attempted to, to um, sequester the um, report and uh, have been giving every excuse why they, they can't uh, hand it over, which is completely uh, bogus because the exclusionary rule does not apply to missing person cases, non-criminal cases. Um, quite honestly, the only way to describe what the Federal Bureau of Investigation is doing is uh, They're lying about what actually happened. The only reason they're not turning it over to me, and they never, uh, pub, you know, published or made made it public, was that they believe Dennis Wade Martin was either a victim of an abduction or an attempt at abduction. Uh, like I said, the book contains a, a, a lot of stuff that I, I can't get into in a short period of time. So I'm just kind of kind of doing a, an overview and. Like I said, like I usually say, excuse me if you hear pages ruffling because this is a uh, about a 200-page bo uh, book, and uh, I just like to hit some of the uh, the highlights. And what I will do is kind of give you a like a Reader's Digest version. So Dennis and his brother and two other younger children who all whose last name was also Martin, but they were no way related, um, decided that all the adults were out in the field. They were gonna play a trick on them. They were gonna sneak around the wood lines, jump out and scare the adults. Well, Dennis was wearing a bright red shirt, which obviously it would be noticeable. So they sent Dennis on his own uh, in a de a different, uh, on a different path. Several minutes later, Dennis didn't show up. And a couple of minutes after that, the adults started looking for Dennis. And approximately 29 days later, in one of the largest manhunts in U.S. Park history, uh, no trace of Dennis was ever found. A couple of confusion that uh, are being used to sell books and stuff. This strange Martin family. Um, they weren't strange. Uh, I, I actually uh, interviewed a lot of these people involved in the case. I was fortunate enough to track them down. This is the only book that has 
an interview with uh, Harold Key. And as we go down there, we'll, we'll talk about Harold Key, but he was kind of one of the more important witnesses in the case. Um, so it was a very large search. The FBI was called in, not because it was a criminal case, but uh, it was called in at the request of the National Park Service because uh, they didn't want the government itself to feel like they were left out. So they came in. One of the lead lead field investigators was uh, James Reich. Uh, James Wright, prior to investigating the Dennis Lloyd Martin case, was also investigated the Mississippi burning case, which the civil right, the three civil rights uh, individuals that were murdered, uh, the Brinks car, uh, armored car robbery. Um, so he was involved in some pretty significant cases. He was. Um, he was a very good investigator. He was kept in the, the Tennessee office uh, because according to uh, Hoover, he spoke the locals' language. Um, his death, his suicide in 1973 was uh, deemed by a lot of people, especially David Pilatus, as being suspicious uh, there were a lot of derogatory comments that he committed himself because of the way he handled the case, yada, yada, yada. Um, I was given the exact details of uh, Mr. Reich's uh, suicide. Uh, I didn't publish him in my book, or nor will I discuss him now because this is... Um, it's a very personal issue with the family, and it's not something that, uh, and you'll find in a lot of my books, even though I do a lot of interviewing, there's a lot of information that I don't put in there for the simple fact is, all you need to know is I've researched it. It's, it wasn't suspicious. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, a conspiracy theory. Uh, it had nothing to do with any of that, so. Now, the next, the next thing, which is another conspiracy theory, is the wild man. Um, the wild man theory that some wild man came out of the woods and grabbed Dennis uh, actually didn't start until probably, I want to say the, give or take the 90s. Uh, and once again, uh, it was developed to really sell books. Uh, the, it was a lot of disinformation. Uh, I had spoke with park rangers in the area, asking them about vagrants in the area. They said, yes, there are vagrants living in the woods. However, they are closer to the Gatlinburg side, which is a, a distance away. Uh, there was also a claim by uh, one, one writer who has a book out that's pretty well known basically stay, saying in or about 1967, a park ranger was almost killed by one of these wild men. Um, 
the National Park Service Rangers Office, Law Enforcement Division, um, pulled the records for me, and there was no no such injury ever recorded in their books. And I checked from '65 uh, all the way up to '75, um, and they have no knowledge of that happening. So. Again, we're we're basically dealing with uh, you know something that was just made up just to simply sell sell books. Unfortunately, um, a lot some of the people I did interview. Let's get back to Bernard Keys. Bernard Keys, his wife, his daughter, and two sons were at Rollins Creek, which is give or take about a half hour to an hour hike from where the uh, alleged disappearance occurred. Mr. Reich said that, I mean, excuse me, uh, Mr. Keyes, unlike a lot of the um, podcasts and uh, other type of reports. They have Mr. Key's sons running ahead of him, seeing something in the woods that they thought was a bear. Then it turned out to be a man uh, carrying something in the woods, and um, which, depending on what writer you want to believe, uh, was supposed to be Dennis uh, Lloyd Martin. The fact of the matter was that. Um, Mr. Key had taken his family into that area because <clears throat> he had told the kids that there were a lot of the wild hogs in the area and bear and uh, deer and they all wanted to take pictures so they go up that day. They end up in Rowan's Creek. Mr. Key was, he, he said about 200 yards ahead of the boys, not, they weren't ahead of him, he was ahead of them. What they don't tell you, and I'm sure that the feds don't want me to make public, but since they won't give me uh, my Freedom of Information Act, I could really give a crap less what they want, what they have to say. Um, Mr. Key heard a child yell for help. And then he heard what he described as a blood-curdling scream. He said he went forward a couple more hundred yards in an attempt to look for the child, but he said because it was in a mountain area, he couldn't tell exactly where the where the uh, yelling had come from. He had his family there, and he wasn't going to leave his family um, because he wasn't sure what was going on. Um, as he and his wife were walking through the woods, they noticed a, a middle-aged white male running through the woods, sweating profusely. Uh, a lot of people have it as disheveled. He says, no, they, the man was not disheveled. He was, he, he was in normal clothes, but he was sweating heavily, and it looked like he had been running. Uh, Mr. Key said he observed the man run up to the road 
get into a white car and accelerate at a high rate of speed, throwing gravel all over the place. Um, he didn't um, he didn't catch the make or the model of the car. So it, he really couldn't provide much more information than that. Now, in a lot of the stories, uh, a lot of this information is um, it's bolstered, it's modified. So um, have it as you will. A lot of the information is uh, it's not it's not very accurate. Um, now the other thing which is kind of a, and, and you know, I call people out on this stuff all the time. Uh, God knows, you know, if you, uh, if you gave uh, <laughs> George Knapp <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, a can of gas, he'd set me on fire. Him along with uh, Dave Pilatus <laughs> and, and uh, uh, <laughs> Matt Phelps, <laughs> a couple other people, they would, they would just set me on fire because I call them out on shit that they have no real answer for. And I know they're bullshitting about stuff anyway, so I just, I feel the need to call them out. Um, then there was this big thing, uh, Art Bell, who is now deceased, was doing um, a radio show. It was something, uh, Midnight in the Desert, and of course... Here's Dave Pilatus, and they bring up Dennis Lloyd Martin, and, you know, Pilatus turns it into a conspiracy theory. Well, he says to Bell, well, why do you think, do you think anybody could just call the military and have special forces and uh, Green Berets and everything else come here? Well, as a matter of fact, yeah, because um, the Martin's next-door neighbor, um, was actually friends with Senator Baker, who in turn called in all of these people, National Guard, Secret Service, uh, you know, just, just a whole bunch of military. But it wasn't the first time that this was done. The National Park Service had been using the military for, for years to assist them in, uh, assist them in their uh, search and rescue attempts. So no, it was it was not, nothing big. There was no big deal. There was no conspiracy theory about the military being involved in there. And whoever telling you there there was is, um, uh, they're just full of crap because it, it, nothing, it had nothing to do with it. Um, the one thing that did hinder the, hinder the search and rescue was, was the rain, the rain and the fog. Um, and the rain had actually started on the 12th of October, uh, not October, 12th of uh, June, days before Dennis even got there. And it continued through all the way up to September. Now, the, the issue, there were several uh, problems with the search that you had. One, you had too many people. There was over 1,500 people, volunteers, most of them at one point, uh, you know, destroying scent, walking over tracks, uh, putting false tracks down with their own shoes. Um, so yeah, there was a, there were a lot of things going on that um, there were a lot of things going on which really hindered hindered the uh, the search and rescue uh, itself. 
you know, it wasn't just a, uh, you know, sometimes that's, that's just the way it happens. I mean, you know, I mean, they did learn a lot from this uh, search and rescue attempt. And as a matter of fact, it's actually uh, in the training guide for, uh, I believe, the uh, uh, one of the Coast Guard, uh, one of the Coast Guard training uh, pamphlets, uh, books that were put out. Um, I'm kind of going to digress a little bit here because, uh, you know, I'm trying to get this, all the, you know, as much information as I can within probably a half hour. Um, what they don't tell you, what they don't know, uh, was that the night that Harold Keyes returned home, he received a phone call, he told me, from um, a man who basically said to him, forget about what you know or heard about the missing boy, keep your mouth shut, and that was it. Well, you know, back then, you know, people were afraid. It's not like today's society where, you know, you got cameras and crap all over the place. He, he was afraid. But what he said to me after that, he said he received a second phone call. And the second phone call, he said, was the same person. And what the person said was, forget about everything you know about this case. The case is closed. Now, the term the case is closed is primarily used by law enforcement or judicial branch. So already we know just by uh, Mr. Key's contact with the uh, FBI, we, kn we know who, who made those phone calls. It was no secret. They attempt to keep it a secret, but it's not, it's not, it's not a secret. You know, we know who did it. Which just supports a theory of the FBI uh, lying about uh, lying about their uh, lying about their actual uh, purpose in the uh, in the case. Now, I did talk to uh, Park Ranger uh, Dwight McCarter, who <clears throat> basically is under the ins assumption that uh, Dennis, you know, had walked off into the um, woods and, you know, just unfortunately wasn't found. And he basically says that um, that when younger children uh, are lost, that they fail to respond to uh, yelling and calling. With Dennis's size, he was small, he believes that he could have hidden any, anywhere in the, in the woods and, and not be seen. He says because of so many searchers in the area that uh, the noise, you know, just the noise of them yelling back and forth to each other may have, in fact, um, may, may, in fact, uh, 
<clears throat> hid Dennis's cry for help if there was any, which I'm not so sure. I believe I believe I believe that's probably true to a point. But the interesting point that isn't made in this case is that back in uh, the early uh, 80s, uh, then retired park ranger McCarter was approached by uh, two individuals who he uh, termed as uh, ginseng poachers, uh, mountain people, reported that several years prior they had found um, the skeletal remains of a, a, a boy along a stream in the big hollow area of the uh, park. Um, and I asked uh, Mr. McCarter why they wouldn't have reported that to the police. He says because the mountain folks uh, don't call the police and because at that time they were illegally poaching ginseng and they didn't want to get arrested for it. Uh, <clears throat> McCarter says that he had brought uh, people from the uh, Bryson uh, search and rescue team to the area. Uh, after he had heard the news, they did a cursory search, really didn't find anything, but um, I could see that how, how that would happen because, uh, you know, with the amount of leaves that fell on the ground, um, you know, any any remains, clothing, bone would, would have obviously been covered by several inches. Uh, there was a failure to, to bring a cadaver dog. And I still honestly believe that if we use today's technology in that area, and uh, Dwight probably would remember where that area was, we may actually, we may actually solve this case, but uh, I've made some suggestions to uh, the feds, but you know, the feds don't want to hear anything. I mean, why, why would we want to solve a, a 50 year old missing person's case? I mean, you know. And just to think for uh, uh, going back to Jim Wright, the investigating agents, I, I found an old uh, newspaper clipping from the uh, Tennessean of Nashville. A newspaper says on Tuesday, January 23rd, 1973, James H. Wright, 854, died at his home from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police say Mr. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Wright retired in June of 72 after serving 26 years with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and that was the long and the short of it. There was a second, there was actually, James Wright uh, mistakenly is put as the um, agent in charge. He was the agent in charge in the field. Wallace Estel was actually the special agent in charge of the whole investigation, and he did most of his uh, he did most of his um, work with with the Martin family um, over the time. So. You know, throughout the time, there were a lot of uh, another another person that they lay a lot of suspicion on, and I've interviewed this guy a couple of times, and you know, I, I don't think he had anything to do with it. Was uh, 
Richard French. Richard French is mentioned in the uh, Coast Guard's um, search and rescue uh, protocol. Uh, him and a, a woman from Florida, a medium from Florida. Uh, you know, there was a th conspiracy theory that they were involved in it. Uh, when I spoke with Miss Martin, yeah, she just d definitely didn't like him. Uh, his his view on Miss Miss Martin was that she was uh, politely uh, rude to him. Uh, she believed he had something to do with it. She found that him appearing uh, at the uh, park every day uh, prior to that, you know, he caused a little trouble in town. And uh, so there was a lot of controversy going there, but I, I actually uh, caught up with Mr. French. I, I spoke with him on the phone. Uh, all the information he provided me fell, fell within information already given. Uh, he basically said that the woman from Florida was a... Uh, uh, medium that they had sent with him and, and a group for two hours to search some areas of the woods. Uh, he basically said she didn't know what the hell she was talking about and, uh, you know, and one of his statements was, uh, you know, there had also been a statement that uh, Bill Martin, uh, Dennis's father, had, you know, been involved in the disappearance for a $3,000 insurance policy. Um, and, and here's, here's uh, right out of my book. Mr. French recalls the week he stayed with Mr. Martin in the Spencefield shelter. Mr. Martin, Mr. French said Mr. Martin would walk the trails calling Dennis's name. And this was late at night. Uh, Mr. French recalled when Mr. Martin would return to the shelter, he would be sobbing. Mr. French said any man involved in a disappearance wouldn't be bawling or crying like that. So he didn't believe uh, that, that Mr. Uh, Martin had anything to do with it. As a matter of fact, it was also a, um, a rumor that uh, the boy had been killed, buried in Martin's basement. Uh, Mr. French said that he had gone to the basement uh, with Bill Martin um, and he noticed that uh, there were no, there were no, the, the cement floor that was poured there uh, didn't show any abnormality in color, didn't show any areas of disturbance. Uh, so Mr. French's, uh, Mr. French's beliefs, beliefs on it was that uh, all, all the rumors about Mr. Martin uh, are, were fake. And uh, and when we go back to the wild man, <clears throat> they use the word unkempt, which is actually a word that was used later by uh, White McCarter. It shows up a lot. Mr. Key, when Mr. Key described the man, he saw it at Rowan's Creek. He used the terms dirty and rough to describe the man he saw at Rowan's Creek. Mr. Key told the author he did not use the word moonshiner or wild man. Uh, 
in any of his reports, like you will see in a lot of the podcasts, uh, his books. I mean, you know, God, they had everybody, you know, from the wild man, Sasquatch, woolly man. I don't even know who the hell, whatever the hell a woolly man is. Um, to kind of get back to the skeleton in uh, at Big Hollow. I'm just going over my notes. In, in July of 85, McCarter reported an individual he knew had told him he and another person were illegally harvesting ginseng in the park in the Big Hollow area when they found the skull and skeletal remains of a young child. Uh, he estimated the time range to be 72 to 74. When I spoke to McCarter, McCarter said, well, that would have had to been Dennis Martin because uh, every missing child before and after uh, Dennis Martin was found either dead or alive. Um, that would definitely be something uh, worth looking back into. Um, you know, uh, I'm just trying to go over some of the uh, other things that may stick out in this case. Uh, the book has um, a lot of a lot of uh, the letters that went to the Parks Department. Um, <clears throat> I actually have a letter here written to, a letter, uh, letter written to uh, Richard Nixon from uh, a relative of Dennis Martin. So the book does have a lot of things in it. Like I said, I'm just trying to give you a kind of a, a quick overview of uh, you know, what, what may have gone on. I mean, there were other theories um, that went on. Uh, serial killer, at that time, there was there was no known serial killers in the area. Um, I, I believe the only serial killer that year was George Howard Pruitt, and uh, all of his, uh, the people he killed were all local. He wasn't... Um, he wasn't anywhere in the area. An animal attack theory, um, that's always a possibility. However, uh, if there's an animal, you know, you're gonna have uh, clothing remains, um, you know, partial body parts. Um, and the, the animals in the area, you know, they say there were cougars, however, in the area, but, uh, that wouldn't explain why there was a lack of lack of clothing or anything like that. So, or any type of other remains. There's a lot of inner office correspondences here. Um, you know, we go over a lot, a lot of different stuff. And again, I, I like I said with the first book on episode one, the disappearance of. Uh, Joan, Joan Carolyn Risch. The company that I had edit this was a company from overseas. And although the grammar is correct, um, they could have done a hell of a lot better job. Um, I mean, I honestly think my Grammarly and my Word 10 uh, does a better job. But, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting case. The book has a lot more information that I was able to put out, you know, in the last uh, 
half hour, but um, it's definitely a, a case if, if you're kind of new to this or even if you're old or you just happen to want to keep up on the Dennis Martin case. Um, when the book came out, and this was like 2017, um, I had a lot of comments on Amazon. Most of them were favorable. Uh, some of them pretty much sucked, but the ones that sucked, I, I learned that I, I read a couple of them and um, they were under different names, but you could tell it was the same person. So I just figured I, I pissed somebody off and I started talking about them screwing up reports. Some of the commentaries I got on the book uh, from Micah Hanks, the, the Grayland Report. Mike Bouchard is an author and an investigator with 30 years of uh, investigating missing person cases. He has proved the most relevant and updated information about the Dennis Lloyd Martin case, in my opinion. He has done a yeoman's work interviewing every person still alive and available in this case. Um, I've also, I also did a, uh, a podcast with uh, Micah Hanks uh, concerning uh, Dennis Lloyd Martin. I have uh, Terry Sutton from Savage Watch. Unlike many other uh, true crime writers, Mike Bouchard can get information that, that often has never been released to the public. A fact only only writers, uh, he, he used his experience in law enforcement to get answers, plus my contacts, and not create myths and uh, foolish uh, falsehoods like many of the other true crime writers. And, and you know, unfortunately that's true. Uh, you know, when you're in the cold cases or true crimes, you know, what sells books is bullshit. And, and I don't do bullshit. I don't sell a ton of books, but the books, the books that I do sell have more information on a particular, um, a particular topic that, you know, uh, I try to do my research. Is it the best research in the world? No, by far means, but, um, it, it's, I try, I try to put out information that people that want to research will use. I'm not here to write a, uh, uh, like I told one person, I, I'm not a, um, this is, my books aren't books that you, you want to take to bed with a hot cup of coffee or a hot glass of milk or whatever the hell you're going to take with you because, um, you know, I, I, I write it in layman's terms. I write it in police terms. I don't write it in, um, I don't give too many, I don't really give a hoot too much about commas and this, that, and the other thing that really doesn't matter, make it matter in the case. One thing I will tell you uh, about this book and how it actually got me involved in looking into some of these cases, I was actually finishing and editing an archaeological book in 2016 called The Paleo Project. And the individual that, um, who was uh, editing the book for me uh, had sent me this article about this 1969 disappearance. And to be quite honest with you, at that time, I was jammed up with this book trying to get other stuff out. So I put it on the top of my desk and that's where it had sit, sat for, I don't know, six months. And when I read the article, there were a lot of statements in the article and facts in the article that caught my like contempt of cop mentality. They, they just didn't seem right. They, uh, there was something that didn't really sound right about it. So basically what I did was I started investigating the case myself. 
uh, interviewed a lot of people that were that were there, and uh, the next thing we know, we we had a, we have a book out here. <clears throat> Which one of these days I will have all of these books re-edited, but you know, if you're more interested in, in editing and, and and that kind of stuff like that instead of fact. Uh, I'm probably not your guy, but uh, I mean they're, they're pretty good. They pass Cranley, so that, that, you know that's good enough. Um, but if you get a chance, uh, this book, like many of my other books, can be found on Amazon. It's the disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin. It used to go by it, its original name was uh, Forever Searching, uh, and because of the algorithms uh, that Amazon uses nowadays, which really don't work for crap anyway. Uh, I had to um, switch a lot of the names on my books just just to, you know, get more hits on it. So this is episode two of The Night Stalker. And no, the, the Night Stalker uh, podcast has nothing to do with Ramirez, a serial killer, um, which, uh, you know, an, another... Another, you know, I don't even like talking about people like that because they're worthless. Uh, the interesting thing is the Night Stalker actually came from a uh, 1972 movie, The, the Night Stalker, but uh, an investigative reporter, Carl Kochak, who was played by Darren McGavin. Uh, his, first, his first assignment was to hunt vampires, of a vampire. And that's where the, the name kind of manifested itself. Uh, like I said, this isn't a really picture picture version of it, of uh, a podcast. You know, I don't show you a ton of fancy pictures and stuff like a lot of people. I'm not going to throw a lot of BS on to you. But, um, you know, they're interesting cases. You can only put out so much in 40 minutes. Uh but I hope it piqued your interest and I will see you for episode three. Um, haven't determined what that, that one will be. That might be the uh, Connecticut cult, the Broken Cross with Brother Julius, uh, who was a, a cult leader back in the 70s in Connecticut. Uh, the cult actually still exists today. Although they deny they exist, but they, they leave their thumbprints on everything. So... Until episode, uh, until episode three, keep reading, keep researching, and I will see you the next time.